Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. And John wants to help us think some more about this as we, as we walk through our passage today. If you've been with us, you'll remember that we've been going through the, the letter called 1 John, and John has been showing us the problem with some distorted thinking about Christ that some who, who had been in his churches held, though, though these same folks whom John, we looked at last week, called them antichrists, with a kind of a lowercase a, because they seemed opposed to Jesus Christ, have now, it seems like they've kind of left, for the most part, John's churches, but they still are exerting influence. And John's not finished talking about some of the issues, but at, but at this point in the letter, he wants to kind of turn and, and talk a little bit more to the faithful, to encourage them who've kind of been going through some of this adversity in their church family. And they're probably at this point kind of beat up because the Antichrist have been claiming a, a kind of a superior spirituality, that they were more spiritual than the others, that they were somehow superior in that way, and that they were stepping out of the church and leaving it behind because they were getting pulled back or the, the rest of the church was seeing it their way. They wanted to make these claims of that, and yet that action was hurting those who, who would be left behind. I mean, how would you like it if someone says, well, you're not very spiritual, you're not spiritual enough, we're the real spiritual ones. And, and it doesn't mean that they were right. In fact, John wants to argue they weren't right. And in fact, he wants to say these quote-unquote super-Christians may well not have been Christians at all, but they were, they were hurtful to those in the church body. And so John wants to encourage those who are still there. So we're going to look at, in 1 John today, if you have your Bibles with you, open to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. First John is one of the last writings of the New Testament. There's a 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, they're all letters, and this is the first of the three. If you don't have that, in your bulletins we have some notes that you can pull out that have the scriptures in them along with places for you to, to take some notes. So beginning here in 1 John, verse 28, John writes, and now little children, abide in him. He's talking about abide in Jesus. So that when he appears, his second coming, we may have confidence and, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John uh, loves his churches, these churches he helped to form, these churches that he was the father of the faith for many of them. And he wants to encourage members of those churches to abide in Christ. That is, to stay rooted in Christ. That, that, that being a follower of Christ is not something we do one day a week. It's not something we check off our list. Well, I've gone to church today. It is a lifestyle. It is a culture, a part of our life culture that roots itself in Jesus Christ. The, and and that we stay there through our study of Scripture and prayer, through worship and serving others and so much more. Abiding is the picture of, of a relationship, not a task. And it has a sense of, of being ongoing, not a one-time thing. Not like, I did it, that's done, I don't have to worry about it anymore. But rather, this is how I continue to live my life, this sense of abiding. And John says, whether or not a person is abiding in Christ can lead to a couple of different reactions when Jesus returns in his second coming. 
if we have continued to abide in Christ, then he tells us we know Christ. There is a relationship there, and Christ will know us so that we will experience confidence, even joy at his appearing. We're not going to have to wonder, are we okay? Have I done good enough? Because it's not about good enough. It's about relationship and that he loves us, and we can rest confident in that. Sometimes people wonder, well, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. If you're wondering that, then, then I suspect there's not a relationship there. When you have the relationship, when you make that commitment to him, it no longer is about how good I am. It is about a confidence in knowing he loves me and he's accepted me. And the reverse makes some of those distinctions even more clear. If we have not abided in Christ, and particularly he's talking about those who who left his churches, who knew about Christ, who, who knew facts and information, but didn't know him, didn't trust him, didn't follow him, then he says we will experience a sense of shame at his return. In fact, John says at his Christ's return that those, those folks will shrink from him because they will realize that all the time they pursued the wrong things. They tried to check the boxes. They tried to do things to look good instead of work on a relationship with him day in and day out. And they realize there are going to be consequences for those choices they made. John then kind of builds on that, elaborates, telling his readers that when we show God's righteous character in, in how we live our lives each day, the daily living of our lives, we are showing that we are born of him, that it is an ongoing thing. It's not just a once in a while. But, but here's how this really matters. Really knowing God and, and really getting his righteous character leads to imitation of that in our own lives. We want to live out who we know. We want to become like those we value, those we, we look up to. But the reverse isn't necessarily true. Living righteously isn't proof that we are born of him. A person can, can do the right things for the wrong reasons. I mean, we can all imagine circumstances and situations where we did something, we, we showed up somewhere to look good, to, to m- make somebody appreciate us, rather than go for the sake of what we need and what we can get out of it or what we can give to it, you know? If, if you come to church today because you want somebody to, to approve of you, we're glad you're here, but that's not a good reason and, and it's, not a, it's not a reason that, that will help you in relationship with God. God wants you to know he loves you as you are. And yet, when we do things to try to gain that approval, whether it's in relationships with others or relationship with God, it, it ultimately, at some point along the way, it's going to fall apart. Because we can never do it all the time good enough. John Stott said, a person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, but not the cause or condition of it. This right relationship with God, this being so rightly related to him that we want to live then rightly. And not because we're trying to impress anybody or prove anything to anyone. It comes out of the depth of our soul as something we desire to do rather than something we feel compelled to do in order to gain somebody's approval. And for those who who have been born of him, who've been born in Christ, John says there's some incredibly good news beyond just even confidence that we can have. And and the the thing about it is we read these next verses in, in the English text, it doesn't really get the sense of excitement and wonder that John is feeling as he writes this, the passion in his writing. It would be very easy when we turn to chapter three, verse one to say, 
See what kind of love the, the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? It can sound like a very factual thing. But in reality, it has more of this sense. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that, that, that we, we ourselves should be called children of God. And so we are. We are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I, I want to tell you, to me, this is, this is one of my favorite passages in, in the whole Bible. I don't know why, at some point in... Years ago, in, in reading this, there was something about reading this that the words jumped off at the, off the page at me. And they continue to do. There's, there's something about, to me, the excitement of what that, that God is conveying to us here. The, the, John expresses this amazing wonder that, that there is this love of God the Father given to us, to you and to me. And, and in the Greek language, it has the sense of being so unusual, so unearthly, or so so unique that we can barely comprehend it. It's not what we experience in our, in our typical lives day to day. The, the love here is what's called agape love in, in the Greek language, which is God's unmerited love, his unconditional love, his sacrificial love. In other words, it cost him something for us. It, it is so amazing because in this love, God has chosen to adopt you and me as his very own children, to adopt us, to adopt those who have been far from him. In, in the first century, uh, there were not the societal safety nets that we have in place even today. So adoption in the first century was such a huge deal because it could literally mean the difference between life and death. In our time, maybe, we, we don't see it quite the same way. And I have to confess to you, and, and, and it, it kind of it grieves me, uh, when my younger brother and I were kids, you know, we, were, we, were, we, we got along pretty well most of the time. But there were times when I really wanted to get at him. I wanted to get him. I wanted to annoy him. I wanted to bug him. I wanted to mess with him. I don't know if any of you other older siblings have ever done this, but I, more than once, I have to confess, told him he was adopted. I mean, I can't just say I did it once. I did it a few times. Any, any, do I have any other older siblings in here? Y'all know what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, you know, it's just like kind of, twisting a knife a little bit. I mean, you, you love your parents, and then all of a sudden to hear maybe, well, you, you were kind of a Johnny-come-lately. You were an afterthought. You weren't a part of this whole thing all along. And, and I mean, my whole intention, honestly, my intention was to aggravate my brother. So I, I, can't, I, I can't say it any other way. The thing is, as I've grown up, as I came to know Jesus Christ and who he really is, I came to realize I was so wrong. I was completely off base. Because when God talks about adoption, it's not, it's not at all what I intended, what I said, what I meant. I, I, I've discovered that, 
that yes, he created us all. There is this sense of paternity that we can all claim being created by God, but there is also this sense of fatherhood and adoption is this incredible choice that a family makes to face all kinds of challenges, all kinds of trials, all kinds of expenses, and more to welcome a child into their family as their own. Sometimes people today adopt because they cannot have children. Sometimes today people adopt because there's a circumstance or God has put it on their heart. But, but here's the thing I've come to realize. Some people may get a- accidentally pregnant and have a child. But today, no one accidentally adopts a child. It's not an accident. It's not something you do as an afterthought. It's not something you do to get back at somebody or because, well, you didn't have anything else to do. It is intentional. It is an act of enormous love, of commitment, of saying, I care so much about having a child in my hands that we will adopt. After the first service, a young couple was walking out uh, fairly new to our church, and they, they were pushing a stroller. And they walked up to him and they said, this is our baby, eight weeks old, and we, adopt, we are adopting her. We picked her up on the third day she was alive. One day, we don't have a clue, and three days later, we're bringing a baby home. You know, I just, I loved, I mean, they're saying that their, their faces lit up. They were so excited that, that they'd have this opportunity to give this love, to make this choice. And I guarantee you, there were other people who would have taken that child. But this couple wanted to love that child. It was not an accident. And so I, I tell you now, I repent of everything I ever did to my brother. If you ever meet him, I mean, he's a good guy. There's no question about that. But I was mean, and, and I didn't get it. I really didn't. I didn't get what any of you who are adopted or any of you who have adopted know so much better than I did. I mean, I was trying to make belittle something I didn't understand, and that was, that was a shame because adoption is one of the greatest gifts that anybody can give. And John marvels at this kind of love of God the Father that he has for you and me, that he loves us and all people, though, though many fail to recognize it, many fail to acknowledge it, many fail to, to become a part of it. This is what you and I were born for. But because of sin in our lives, we, are, we have become much like the prodigal son. The, our father loves us, but we have left. We have gone off to the far country to live our lives on our own terms, to do what we want to do. And, and hopefully we have come back, we have come to ourselves. We have recognized that we have a father who loves us. Because the picture in that parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 is not of a father who was sitting there tapping his toe. It was not of a father who was off busy doing something else. It was a picture of a father who was constantly looking out and watching the hills to see the moment his son appeared, it says he ran to meet him. He didn't walk. He didn't didn't berate his son. He welcomed him back into the family. He gave them all the the uh, accoutrements of, of family of that day and time to signify that my son who was lost now is found. You and I 
Many of us have discovered that. Many of us have been off to the far country and, and come home and been welcomed by this loving Father who cares for us, who accepts us for who we are and, and loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross that our sins might be forgiven. The world around us doesn't get that. The world around us judges us by our appearance or by our success or by whom we are related to. And, and so often we get caught up in that. We get caught up in serving ourselves and, and seeking what we want rather than seeking the Father. But when we understand what this Father has done for us, when we understand the depths and the, and the, and the width he has gone for us, it no longer becomes coming back to him just to say, okay, Dad, I'm back home. It is, Father, you have welcomed me back into home, in your home as your child again that I did not deserve. You expressed that love to me so much that I want to serve you. I want to, I want to honor you. I want to live for you in every moment of every day of the rest of my life. That's the kind of spirit that John is, is sharing with, with those with him. That he wants to make the point that those of us who have welcomed Christ into our lives have this reality that we have been adopted as children of God. And not that it will be consummated someday in the future. It will become real then when Jesus comes back. John says it's now. It's not just someday that we will be children. Today, every person in this room who has welcomed Jesus Christ into your heart, you are children of God, of the Most High God, and you can have that confidence, that peace, that hope now. You don't have to wonder someday. You don't have to wait for it to happen. It doesn't mean that life will go great, but it means that no matter what happens, there is a Father who loves you to the point that he would allow his natural son to die on your behalf. You and I, the natural son died for the adopted sons and daughters. It is unbelievable. And yet John says, as good as, it, as that realization is, the future is even better because we experience now just sort of a, a foretaste of what it means to live in the family of God. John said, in my father's house are many rooms or many mansions. The apostle Paul wrote, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you and I, we don't, we, I can imagine a lot. And he's saying, whatever I imagine, it's not enough. It's not big enough. It's not glorious enough. It's not amazing enough. And John says that as we walk with Christ, as we focus on him through the power of the Spirit, in this day and time, we increasingly become even like him. The, and, and Paul said to the Corinthians, the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image, that our lives will be so transformed that we will be like him, that we will be able, really for the first time, to see him as he is in all of his glory. The point is not to come home and just camp out in our room. The point is that as we understand what God the Father has done for us, we want to honor him. We want to serve him. We want to become more like him. And he gives us the gift of his spirit to allow that transformation to occur in you and me, to begin to weed out the bad 
and to lift up that which is pure and holy. So that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That we would be increasingly transformed. That sin would become less and less our default choice. Not that, not that in this life it would ever completely go away, but that it would be less. That, that the things that today sometimes drive me or that I feel addicted to or I feel drawn to, that as Christ grows in me, there will come a day where I start to realize I don't desire that to the degree I once did. I don't need that like I used to. It's not something always instantaneous, but we can look at our lives and we can look back and we can see God has been changing us. And yet we still battle sin. It doesn't go away. And so John, John wants to reflect on this tension between being transformed and becoming pure and, and the sin that's still with us. And he says some things in, in the next few verses that almost seem contradictory to what he has already said. What I want to do is I'm going to take verses 4 to 10. I'm going to read all of them, but I want to kind of look at them as understand them as two groups, verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 to 10. That's why even in your notes and on the screen, they're going to be broken out, going to go one into the other, but they're almost parallel passages. So listen to what he writes. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either, either seen him or known him. Little children, let no, one who keeps, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice, practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John has given us here some what I would call some, I think are some pretty clear thoughts about sin. And he has in mind a group called the Antichrist that have, have gone out from the church because their beliefs that the body was evil and, and spirit good meant that they felt like they could justify anything they wanted to do. They could justify giving in to bodily cravings and lusts and, and dismiss what Jesus had said and the moral teachings of the Bible. Uh, ultimately, what John was speaking against is, is just plain old-fashioned selfishness of us wanting sometimes to do things that we want to do, whether it's good for us or good for somebody else or not. And what they were doing was claiming a spiritual authority to do that, that somehow because we are so spiritual, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Our spirits won't be affected by that. That's a bunch of bull. We are a unity together. What we do in our body affects our spirit. What we do with our experience and our emotions affects our body. All of those things are interconnected and interrelated. But John is pointing to this, this selfishness, this self-centeredness that is in every one of us to some degree, that every one of us has to, to battle in our lives. And what these folks have done is they've rationalized the way to do it spiritually. 
It's one reason this, this letter is so valuable to us today because we still see people today rationalizing all kinds of behaviors and saying it's okay for me to do this or it's not a big deal or God will forgive me if I do this. And all of that stuff is, is a bunch of garbage. Some of the things John has said in this passage, though, seem, he may, some of us seem like he's saying, you know, any sin is of the devil, and yet he, he has said we could confess our sins and be forgiven. He, he seems to be kind of having it both ways. Yes, you can be forgiven for your sins, but at the same time, committing any sins places us in league with the devil. That's, that's one way to kind of look at what he's been saying. So to make sense of this, I, I want us to realize some stuff. First, John is actually talking to two groups of people. He's already told us who they are. They are the children of God, but also the children of the devil. And, and as he walks his church family through this situation, he uses a, a unique word in here that is not common in, in the Bible. It's lawlessness. It, Greek word is, essentially means a, a, opposed to the law. The only other place it's found is in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And he gives us a picture of someone who stands in direct opposition to Christ at his second coming, opposed to the, the good law. It says in 2 Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, most scholars here believe that the Apostle Paul is talking about the Antichrist with a capital A, the big dude, the guy uh, the battles are going to be a part of as you get near the book, end of the book of Revelation. And so what we see is a person whose life and lifestyle is fundamentally opposed to, to Christ's, who thinks his way is right, that Christ's is wrong, and so he lives in rebellion to Christ. He, he has no concern about what Christ says. He's going to do what he wants to do. And John has been concerned that this one, this the Antichrist, the, the one, has his spirit has been at work in the world around us, in the world of his people, leading people astray, leading them to oppose the ways of Christ. And opposing him doesn't simply mean being, well, I'm totally against Jesus Christ. I don't believe in him. Opposed to Jesus Christ can be as simple as saying, well, I know the Bible says I ought to do this, but I'm, I don't really feel like it. Or I'm not sure I can believe that everybody else is doing it this way. Why would I want to go along with that? It just it makes me stand out. It, it puts me in a precarious position at work or with some of my classmates. In other words, the spirit of the Antichrist is constantly calling us away from the way of Christ. And so John is setting up a, a contrast here between the children of God and the children of the devil who follow the Antichrist, who, who live for lawlessness. The children of the devil are opposed to God, opposed to Jesus Christ. They seek to live their way, on their own terms, when they want. And in many cases, yes, they are in outright opposition to, to Jesus Christ. But in other cases, they're just ambivalent. They just kind of are lukewarm about life. And they say, well, I'll go along, and, and when being a Christian is convenient, I'll do that. But when it, it's going to cost me something, when it's going to put me in, in places of, of challenge with my coworker or my boss or my spouse or my kids or my parents or my neighbors, well, then I'm not going to do that. That's not 
the way of Christ. And, and John says, that's really the way that the children of the devil live. They made a practice of sinning, he says. Since they are opposed to God, it's their bent, it's their orientation in life, away from God, away from his ways, away from his laws. In other words, they, the, the intention is not to always follow Christ. The intention is to do what I want. It doesn't mean that there's some little guy running around with a pitchfork and horns that they're worshiping. This is not like the church of Satan. This is anybody who is not interested in doing what Christ says. That's the danger here. On the other hand, the children of God abide in Christ because he has made a renewed relationship possible through his atoning sacrifice on the cross that enables our sins to be forgiven. We are made right with God. The, the big technical term is justified, and our relationship with God through Christ is restored. And John tells his churches to continue to seek to receive this in our lives. And yet, it, though it is the direction of our lives, the recognition is that we are still human and afflicted with sin. And so we will still sin, not because it's our intention, not because it's the direction of my life, not because it's the way I'm headed, but because I am fallen and I do fall short of the glory of God. And so John has already told us that in chapter one, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. In other words, he will do what is right to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But justification only takes care of past sins, of what I've already done. How can I be increasingly inclined not to sin? Again, that's only by the grace of God who gives us his Holy Spirit to come and live in us, to transform our hearts and actions so that we become less and less drawn to sin, where our, our focus now turns from doing what I want to do to saying, Jesus, you're not only my Savior, you're also my Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord means obedience. Lord means following. That was the invitation Jesus gave to all his disciples. What did he say? He didn't say, come and learn about being a disciple. He just simply said, come and follow me. That is always his invitation. And when that is our intention to follow him, yes, we will get diverted. Yes, we will make mistakes. Yes, we will sin. But we are increasingly, if we allow him to work on ourselves, less drawn to the sin, less enamored with it, less captured by it, less addicted to it. And that's not magic. It doesn't just, for most of us, it doesn't happen like that. We have to work at that. We have to allow the Spirit to work in our lives. And as we'll see more clearly in a couple of weeks, love is the picture of the life that is being transformed because John himself will say in chapter four and five that God himself is love. And the result is that our hearts and, and the desires of our hearts turn increasingly to God and away from the things of the world so that we intentionally choose to sin less and less. And you and I need to hear that. You are not, you don't have to always sin because the Holy Spirit or the Christ follower lives in you to change your heart. Now, it'll be a challenge and it'll be hard no question about that. But, but it's just like, you know, if I'm working out with weights. If I take a little 20-pound, 5-pound weights and I do this a couple of times, I don't get any stronger. 
It's not until the last press. It's not until the last time when my arms are shaking and hurting and I can barely get them up. It's in that effort that I finally get, grow stronger. And the same thing's true in our lives. It's not in just the simple things. It is coming up against the challenges and making the choice, remembering I'm a child of God. I'm defined by who Jesus is, not by who the world says I am. And therefore, as I enter those situations and I am challenged, I have a choice to make. Will I follow Jesus? Will I live as a child of my father? Or will I go along to get along? Now let me tell you, that's a battle every one of us has. I got it. I battle it all the time. You battle it. We all do. The question is, do I want that battle or not? If I don't want the battle, if I say it's too hard, I'm going to go do it my way, then I'm moving out of the realm of children of God. It it is not saying that we do not sin, but it is saying no one who abides in him keeps on sinning as a lifestyle because our orientation is no longer toward the practice of sinning, of being comfortable continuing to sin, but it is toward Christ. Our faith is in him, enabling us to rely on his spirit to transform our hearts, to transform our actions, to increasingly practice righteousness, to love those around us. God's spirit works in us to to make us holy. The word holy in, in its root means just means different unlike the world around us. Because if I'm not giving into the culture, if I'm not giving into the ways of, of consumerism and hedonism and, and, and selfishness, that's really the, the core of it, then I'm not like the rest of the world. And, and I'm different from the children of the devil. Because, and it, it's a mark of children of God. The, 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 the process is called sanctification. It is this transformation. And yet, remember that when the children of God do sin... As we do, Christ has already given us a way forward back into his righteousness when we confess our sins and seek God's forgiveness. What's more, John tells us that the children of God have even more good news because Jesus came to destroy all sin and the works of the devil. In verse 5, Christ said, it says Christ appeared in order to take away sin. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what we are experiencing now is not going to last. The pressure you feel right now, the times when you come up against standards that are hard, the times when you're challenged to love the unlovely, the times when you're challenged to take the hard stand to live the life of integrity versus others, they're not going to always last. The devil does not have the final word, Jesus does, who came to destroy the works of of the devil and the devil himself. Yes, for now, sin exists. It does. But Christ's death and resurrection are a promise to us that the good work he began in us will come to fruition at Christ's return when sin, death, and Satan will all be completely destroyed for all time. John is encouraging members of his church back then, but he's encouraging us today, the churches of today, Gateway Church today, that even though there are struggles, even though there are antichrists still at work in the world today, still at work in the churches today, yet we have the promise that we are made right with Christ. That is what righteous essentially means, being made right with Christ through Jesus Christ and that we can be transformed through the power of his spirit working in us, giving us hope for how you and I live my life 
today, tomorrow, and the next day. Sin and evil and the devil haven't gone away, but they are ultimately defeated. The, the end is in sight. Their attempts to wreak havoc today cannot ultimately affect the Christ followers' eternity. Hear that. The devil, if you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, the works of the devil cannot take that from you. And yet, as we saw earlier, it's more than just assurance. It is a promise that in Christ we have been made children of God now, today. That's who we are in this very minute. The Father of the universe created everything. In fact, the Father who spoke it into existence who spoke galaxies 13.3 or 4 billion light years away from us are in his hand. The Father who has all power, all knowledge, who is present in all times, in all places, who is sitting with you in, in this moment, but will be with you in your tears as well as your joys. This Father is not just a benevolent God who wound up the universe and let it go. He is a heavenly father, a daddy. Abba is the Greek word. Someone who loves you, who wants to be a part of your life, who cares about you and me. He knows the number of hairs that we have on our heads. Some of us have more than others, but he knows. He knows our hand, our names are inscribed on his hands. And John said in his gospel, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not the option, the right. Pastor Lee Eckhoff tells about a young couple, John and Lori Foote. And they were, this was a few years ago, they were working with a youth group as volunteers in Nebraska when they met Amanda, a teenage girl about the same age as their son Wesley. She had come from a, a terribly abusive home and, and eventually had been taken away from her parents by the state. And John and Lori were able to bring her into their home and raise her in a foster setting. But recently, after talking it over with their two natural-born sons, John and Lori legally adopted Amanda. She's, at, she's 22, that's when this has happened. Her name is now Amanda Foote. She's taken on the last name of her adoptive parents. She even got a brand new birth certificate. And, and now John and Lori have not two, but three legal heirs. And Amanda now has two brothers. She no longer has any legal claim upon her former parents who disowned her, nor they upon her. And, and, and John and Lori had thought of Amanda as their daughter for a long time. But when asked if anything felt different after that day at the courthouse, John said, absolutely. When it was official, there was a huge change in Lori and me, sort of like when you see your newborn for the first time. And for Amanda, there was a change in her too. Now she knew she belonged. She knew we were her parents. 
want to tell y'all, that is the picture, I think, that God wants to tell you and me today. You don't have to wonder, does God care about me? Does my life matter? In Jesus Christ, he has said, you matter. You, you're, you're, I'm not just your creator. I want you to be my child. I want you to be my kid. I want you to be in my house. I want you to have everything my heirs already have. Jesus, the firstborn who was resurrected, he says, you become my child. You're going to have that too. You have Jesus not just as your Lord and Savior, but he's also your brother. You're not going to go this journey by yourself because in, in the family of God, if you're my children, you're brothers and sisters to each other. You look around this room. You, you may be a, an only child. You may be one of, of a dozen. But in, in God's eyes, you have hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ sitting here in this room with you right now. You're not alone. You're not by yourself. His whole desire is to bring you into his family because he loves you. Not because you or I were good or deserved it. When a person chooses to adopt, they don't know, they don't know any of that. They do it because of the love in them. Because of the love of the Father, we have been adopted. But God went even further than John and Lori did because God has given us his Holy Spirit. He has put in us his, his own heart, his own mind, his own passion, his own holiness, so that as people look at us, as we seek to follow Christ, that they look at us and say, wow, you look just like your dad. That's the picture he's aiming for. That your life and mine is so transformed by the love of Christ working in us to change us that they can see our heavenly father in us. Some won't like it. Some will give you a hard time about it. Some may even fire you over it. But what is a hard time or firing in comparison to eternity? Forever. With a family of God around you. With Jesus at your side. With the Holy Spirit living in you. I'll tell you, he invites you to be his child. To be his son or his daughter. For some of you, that's a decision you need to make today. That I want to be a child of God. I want to be a son or a daughter of God. I don't want to just know he created me. I want him to be my heavenly father. And our prayer team is going to be down here. And if, if you need to talk to somebody about that, they'd love to help you just think about that. Some of you need to do that. But here's the other thing. For many, many more of us who have, can, we know there was a time when we were adopted into that family. Sometimes we forget, don't we? The world gets hard. People make fun of us. We drift. We get caught up in stuff. And before long, we're 
sinning in ways we never thought we would. We're making choices we never thought because we forgot who we are and whose we are. And your heavenly father wants you to hear today, you're still my child. Don't forget that. Tomorrow, don't forget that. On Thursday, don't forget that. Doesn't matter what the world throws at you. Doesn't matter bad stuff happens or good stuff happens. God adopted you as a son and daughter. And he will stay faithful to you forever. Remind yourself of that. Remember that. Don't forget. If you want to dig more, we have a study guide many of our groups are using. It's on the Find It page. Um, If you want to express to God thanks through serving, um, Josh Mauser is right over here at the door, and he'd love to take you on a, a volunteer. Because that's what serving is. It's saying, thank you, God. You did so much for me. How can I thank you back? But by giving my life for the sake of others. And myself and a few others of us, we'll be out here. We'd love to greet you if you're a guest here today. We'd love to say hello and talk to you about our family here, this this local group of the family of God. But before we close, I want to go back to the Scripture. And I want you and me to affirm the Word of God. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I feel like what, what John wrote is something that for every child of God, we can stand and affirm. So I want to invite you just to do that, to stand and read this with me. But I hope that you won't just read the words, but let them be something you claim in your own life, something that you affirm as being true for you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let us pray. Father, help us to live that way so that when you appear in Jesus Christ before us, we will see him as he is because we will be like him, that your spirit has worked in us as your children to grow us up into maturity so that people can look at us and say, I see the family resemblance. Father, there's no greater gift that anyone can give us than to call us a Christian. And even if they say it derisively, even if they say it and spit it out their mouth, Father, we are children of of you, the Most High God. Help us to claim that and live that every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.
To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.